The struggle was real. Welcome to Listening to Pain Tribe with Mike and Dan, a podcast about the art and hobby of miniature painting. Thank you for joining us on our quest to become better, braver, happier painters. I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Thanks for joining us today. Last episode, we talked about what has changed in a hobby over the last 20 years. This time, we'd like to talk about some of the challenges painters face on a day-to-day basis and overall challenges of our hobby. So we're going to take a little bit of a macro and a micro look at the hobby. Probably the first challenge for me that comes to mind is the expense or cost of this hobby. It's crazy. When I first started ages ago, the first thing I ever purchased was a box of 30 Space Marines for $15. Now you can't get a single Space Marine for $15. And so the cost of the hobby over the years has definitely increased exponentially, which is kind of an interesting factor because you would think with more choices, because we have a bazillion choices in game systems, there's tons of miniature companies out there, there would be some more price competition. But it seems that every new game system that comes out has just expensive as expensive miniatures as the last one. It's almost like a hold my beer moment, I can charge more for this. And then you also run into, if you're somebody like a historical figure painter or somebody that just paints busts and such, now you're dealing in the world of resin. And a lot of resin products are substantially more expensive than any of the plastic products. And I know for a fact that it is more expensive to make a resin model than it is a plastic model because you have the limited run, et cetera. And when you're doing plastic, you're typically doing a mass production of plastic miniatures. And so that decreases the overall cost, et cetera. But it's something for real. There is a negative side effect of it, too. So what's also happened at the same time is that you have nasty companies that are recasting overseas. Let's just say Chinese recasters are out there and you should never buy a Chinese recast because A, you're risking quality. B, you're hurting the artists and the companies that are making legitimate models. And C, actually, there is some health risks from it. Some of the polyurethane stuff that they use ain't so safe. So Just on those reasons alone, don't buy a Chinese recast. But the nature of the cost of playing this game or playing games in general, not just Warhammer, not just War Machine or anything along those lines, does create that black market, unfortunately. Now, one of the things I thought was interesting is kind of in response to this, companies that focus on things like Dungeons and Dragons and uh, Dungeons and Dragons and not necessarily army or skirmish type games have come out with lines of miniatures made of alternative materials while not as good as resin and the the plastic that you see in uh, things like a privateer press or games workshop not those level of plastics or even cool miniature not have some good some games that have some really good plastics but they're quite affordable i think it was a reaper bone the reaper bones line is if you're just into playing games like Dungeons and Dragons and just need some minis on the table for characters and monsters, that's the way to go. WizKids also makes a line of miniatures as well for those type of games. So there are alternatives out there. And things like Bones Black, which is a new product that they just created, increase the quality while also not really jacking up the cost. So there are some affordable things out there. Dan, how you know it's really hard to manage the cost of it because you want to I don't know about you, but I have some serious acquisition issues, whether it's purchasing paints, purchasing miniatures, neat tools that I see, all that stuff kind of adds up. Do you have the same kind of issue I do where you just want, you see it, you want it, you buy it? (laughs) 
Well, yeah, I um, I enjoy gray plastic hanging around my uh, my house because um, there's something better than staring at things that I haven't been able to complete. But when we look um, in relation to other hobbies, though, you do have these plastic models that we put together. We have the paints. We have all the hobby supplies. But really, does it is it much more different cost-wise than other hobbies? Let's say you want to play video games. Yeah, you say the video game is, you know, 75 bucks, which is half the cost of a starter box in, in most cases. But you have to play it on something. Is there a system you have to play it on? And since that's a visual game, how, what do you plug it into? You probably have a computer monitor, but at one point you already purchased that. Or you need a TV. Uh, let's say that you wanted to make jewelry. Well, you have to buy the supplies and the materials in order to make jewelry. Let's say you like to collect mm -hmm. beer cans. You have to buy the beer. You got to drink it so that you can have the can. So, you know, after a couple of those, that gets kind of expensive too. I think how we can manage the cost is just to have a budget. How much time, how much money can I spend in one month or should I spend in a month? And you can do that for any hobby. Hey, I like to buy watches. I like to collect cars, matchbox cars, not real ones because... My $10 a month isn't going to get me very far with a real vehicle. But if, anything, if you just didn't have it in moderation and you can set a budget, cost doesn't become a problem. You might not be able to gather a gigantic army that takes years to accomplish, but we also have to paint those things. And speaking of years, another challenge that we have is time. We have families. We have work. We want to spend more time with our hobbies, but we don't always have that time to do it. And that becomes a challenge also. You know, we have a tournament coming up on the weekend or in a couple of months. We want to be able to field a new army or we want to improve some of our skills. But where do we find the time to do that? Do we sacrifice something? You definitely don't want to sacrifice your family life because that creates all kinds of problems. You can't really sacrifice your work life because, well, you need to have the money so you can purchase your figures and your hobby supplies. Time becomes a very valuable commodity. So Mike, how do you manage your time? I do it very poorly. <laughs> okay. Actually, right now I'm in the process. I'm in the process of, of trying to actually find kind of a new normal with having the podcast, painting. I kind of work two jobs right now, having the family and is you know, it, it's a challenge right now. I'm not painting. I'm not doing a good job with it yet, but I think that's just because the podcast is so new. Um, what I'm figuring out is that I have to take a couple of nights and say, no, put the podcast away and paint. And that's been that that's kind of been a new thing to me that I got to get in the habit of doing, because I got to tell you, if the laptop is on, there's a pretty good chance that I'm I'm sitting in front of it trying to edit, you know, e editing in Audacity and such along those lines and looking for ways to market the podcast or et cetera, thinking about show notes and stuff. And so, you know, it's a, it, I, I don't know if there's ever a single way to master it, but I think, it, you know, if you can keep a schedule and say, you know what, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to pick up the brush for 30 minutes. Now, also for me, one of the things that's a little bit easier with it is I now have a dedicated painting space. For a long time, I was nomadic around the house, and so kind of wherever I could find room to paint, I would. So that meant every time that I went to paint, it was a chore to set up to paint. And so that kind of discouraged me from picking up a brush, too, because I'm like, oh, the video game's already, Overwatch is already to go. 
<laughs> Let me just go play that because it's going to take me 20 minutes to set up to paint somewhere. And so now that I have a dedicated hobby space in the basement, it's a lot easier to access the ho hobby. I mean, even today, I walked by my area in the basement and sat for 10 minutes and hit a color on a, on a robot I'm working on um, with the airbrush. And so, and I was able to do that pretty quickly and kind of get in and out and get a little bit of hobby painting done. So how do you manage your time, Dan? Well, like you, I have a second type of hobby that's taking up some of my time with my 3D printer. So I've been trying to learn how to use that. So it's spending, I've been spending time uh, looking at how to create support, finding things to print, uh, going and actually having to physical pull things off, clean the prints, prep them like I normally would my regular plastic models and figures. Um, and then prepare them to paint. So that's that's taken a little bit of my time also. I usually try to fit in at least a half an hour or so a day if I can, since my commute is very long and I only have a couple hours and I do want to spend time with my family. Weekends is normally a heavy lift for me. I can stay up fairly late Fridays and Saturdays and um, try to get some work done if I need to um, when the family goes to bed. So that's how I, that's how I have time to do things is I have to wait until everybody else is exhausted and they go to bed and that gives me my free time to do it because I, I do still want to spend time with my family and work takes up too much of my regular time. So I got to find it and squeeze it in there when I get a chance. And sometimes that means I don't get to paint it all for a couple of days or even a couple of weeks, but it's still in the back of my head. I'm still doing research. I'm still thinking about stuff, writing stuff out. I still have it in my mind. I have a dedicated space also. So if I need to, I can just pop down for a couple minutes and at least touch a figure, touch some paint, throw something on something just to keep it going. But yes, it's, um, it's difficult sometimes. And it's really difficult. And uh, both Mike and I have experienced this is when you have a new kid, man, that changes oh, everything. Because you had lots of free time. Yeah. You had lots of money. Or at least you had some spare money. Now you have this little black hole of a child that uh, takes your time, takes your money, takes your soul, and uh, <laughs> it's kind of hard to get anything done. And uh, that's one thing that I see probably more than anything I see uh, on Facebook posts is about people like, hey, how do you guys continue the hobby when you have a newborn? First, I'm kind of like surprised that we're able to procreate and that's cool. That keeps us gamers in the next uh, 40 50 years that's good but yeah it's difficult and i'm glad to see that people are sharing their ideas like hey you know what you're feeding the kid and you're painting at the same time or you're sacrificing some other hobby that you have or watching tv but there's communication going and everybody's supporting each other and i think that's pretty important and that's pretty cool now one of one of the challenges that folds in the time and that, that to me is mastering techniques. The number one way to master techniques is to spend time practicing them. But there are some other hiccups with it. Like, for example, I know a lot of people watch, um, you, I, I watch YouTube videos all the time. I'm a big fan of like Vince Ventruella's hobby cheating. Every time he puts out a video, I watch it. You know, there's also Trevarian, who's an amazing painter, Squidmore, all these amazing YouTube channels. If I missed one, I apologize. I watched you know, I, I was thinking about doing a little glazing segment and I went through a YouTube search 
and realized after like scrolling through eight pages that I had watched every single one of those videos that was on there. And I was like, holy cow, there are a lot of videos on glazing alone. So one of the challenges, though, is that when you're doing a technique and mastering a technique home alone, it's kind of hard to know when you're improving. And sometimes you get frustrated. I know I do. Like glazing is a big example of it where, I, you know, I'm, I'm 20 layers into glaze layers into this and I'm not seeing a transition. I'm still seeing the same colors or the same the same line or I go too far or if I'm wet blending, I create mud instead of a transition between the colors or all these nifty techniques. Like the one that still gets me to this day is I've seen like four or five videos, for example, of people that, hey, you missed a mold line use gloss or matte varnish because I've seen videos on both and I can't get either of those two damn things to work to cover a mold line or fill in a seam that I missed and I've already started painting and didn't see it until too late etc so you know it's really it's a struggle to take the techniques that we see in things like videos and kind of take them to the next level or the master's the wrong word because it's art right do you really master anything in art um, I, I don't know. I, I think that's an open-ended question, but trying to figure out how to, how to learn a technique, say I want to learn a wet blend, say I want to do OSL or the one that I know that a lot of people struggle with and I'm guilty of it as well is non-metallic metals or even true metallic metals, you know, which is basic. If you don't know what true metallic metals means, it means basically highlighting and shading true metallics the same way you would go about the process of shading non-metallic metals and so a lot of times you use non-metallic paints to shade metallic paints and true metallic metals for example like the glazer stuff but i'm rambling now so i'm going to move <laughs> move on but mastering techniques has always been a challenge to me and spending the time with it is kind of those two things are kind of hand in hand what what about you dan what i mean are you do you feel like when when you're trying to master a technique, do you have any frustrations with it, or uh, does it burn you out at all? I think hitting plateaus. There are times where you know we can practice something and it seems like a labor, and we're not getting anywhere. That just means that we need that we have grown, and we have not perfected a technique, but we've got the foundation down for a technique, and now it's time to to take a risk or to challenge yourself and move outside that comfort zone to to improve. That's something that, you know, I, I'm taught and it's crammed down my throat in, uh, in my real world. But burnout can be, it's real. Actually, it can't be, it is real. Uh, most of us, if not all of us, get to a point where, hey, we have an army that we want to paint. We have spent a lot of money on it. We spent a lot of time putting it together. And now we're spending a lot of time painting it and now we're like, if I see another drop of red, I'm going to scream. Or if I have to spray paint another critter, black or white, I don't know what I'm going to do. And that is totally true, man. I hate painting reds because I've painted so many red space marines. And green, I hate green because I have so many green space marines and lots of green tyranids it does burn us out and in some instances it can be for years but that can also be because it, it might not be just a burnout from doing all the work but playing and playing the games but maybe we just don't have that time we had to just shelf it for a while 
And then sometimes that just means that we have to start over again because if we don't practice our techniques, then we kind of lose some of those. I think one of the traps that people fall into is that I know people ask advice online and people will get it. You know, you see the, hey, man, I've totally, I'm burned out, lost my mojo. I'm a, I am can't paint and things along those lines. And you see a whole host of selection suggestions like take a break. It's okay to put the brush down. Try something new in the context of miniatures, i.e. paint something that you've never painted before. Like for me, it would be painting an orc or uh, I have done a lot of space alien-like creatures, so that would be something new. It could be try a new technique. It could be a lot of different suggestions like take a walk. I know, I know a lot of times when I hit a wall, I go back to where I started and I, and I paint a space marine because that's where I started. Even if I'm in the middle of a project of painting a bust or painting a, a 75 millimeter figure, et cetera, a lot of times painting a space marine will help me get out of that rust, uh, out of that rut. But that's me though, and that's what works for me. What works for everybody else isn't necessarily going to work for you. And so you have to try to find or just know yourself. Maybe it is, you know what? That night, go pick up a paintbrush, go play a video game go for a walk, go to bed early, do something. It's just people fall in that rut of asking for advice, and I, I respect that, but really in their hearts, they've got to figure out who they are as a painter and what. It may not be the same thing that works every time. You may have to try new things because typically in this world, you do, you're going to burn out more than once or you're going to feel like you can't move forward more than once. So you have to find the thing at that time that's going to work for you. And you know what? The other thing for me, too, has helped as well. Being fortunate enough to live right right near Washington, D.C. and work in D.C., I'm able to go. I go to a, like the other day I went to the Renwick because I was feeling burned out. And on my lunch break, I was able to walk to the Renwick Gallery. And I kind of came home with a little pep in my step painting-wise after looking at all the artwork, you know. And so everybody's got to find their thing. And that, that's kind of, I, I just want to make sure that when people ask for advice online, they understand that they have to take that with a grain of salt because it may not work for them. And nobody may, there may be, some, I, I don't know, may, there's maybe something unusual that you need to do that nobody's ever done before to get out of a rut. Some of these folks that are asking for advice, this might be the first time they've actually run into this burnout as a painter. And they really don't know where to go. And I think it's all right for them to just go ahead and ask for some advice. Because there's always going to be like, hey, check this one out. Check this out. This is what I do. Try this. We almost become kind of tired of seeing and reading those. But for that person getting that feedback, it's fairly important because they're able to at least decide. So maybe they do pick up a figure and start painting that um, non-space marine. And they're like, you know what? I really don't like painting this work. I don't really like painting this color. Let me try something else. Maybe I should just sit and watch TV for a couple minutes. Maybe I should just go and play a video game for a day or two. You shouldn't, you know, stop cold turkey because you're tired of looking at green and red because you've been painting it for so long. But at least gives them some options and hopefully that will at least stimulate them thinking about, oh, well, that didn't work and this didn't work, but hey, I like cutting the yard. I'm going to go cut the yard. Hey, oh, I like taking the trash out. I'm going to go take the trash out. Hey, now I feel much better. I'm going to go and paint now. Or or not. I don't, I don't know who likes taking trash out. But it, well, I, it, I will at least say gives... this too, though. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say cleaning actually helps me too. 
Like if I clean up my painting area, it actually will clear my head. I'm not talking about your painting area, but actually that is a good one though, because sometimes we, you know, we're like, oh, I need this color, I need this color, and you don't put it back in its proper space, and before you know it, you have all of your colors have come down onto your table, and you have 20 different brushes out, and you have, you know, old paper towels, and sometimes you need to declutter one to just maybe give yourself that fresh new start or just to find your colors because i know i've lost a couple of mine in there and it's taken me quite a while to find them because i either put them in the wrong place or they've fallen behind something and i'm like man i've been looking for this color black for the last two days well now i can start painting my black space marines that's my favorite thing is when i'm looking for a color and i can't find it and it's sitting there on the desk like in plain view <laughs> excuse me sorry I, yeah i know it's super frustrating when you can't find a paint you're using or stuff, you can't master a technique or you don't have the time, you don't have the cost. But one of the things that all of that kind of wraps up to a degree into whether you have the patience for the hobby or not. Patience ties into a lot of different things to me. The first thing that patience ties into is understanding that most of us are not naturally artistically gifted to pick up a paintbrush and well, bam, we've got an amazing miniature or get really good at a game or be, uh, you know, any of be an amazing hobby modelist or base builder can build this elaborate display diorama, etc. that all of it takes time, effort, practice, all this different stuff, uh, all these different skills all take patience to actually get to get to the point where you're getting better at. But it's also hard to be patient when you feel like you've been working on the technique and you don't see any improvement in your own work. And so if you're looking at, like a lot of people post comparison pictures like from, this is what I painted 10 years ago and this is what I painted now. Yeah, you could definitely see that, but it's sometimes hard to see the difference in your level two or three months later, six months later, a year later. So some of it is just developing patience and understand that, you know, some of these, changes are, are some of the times improvements are drastic sometimes it's gradual and sometimes you don't even know you were improving until someone says something to you that you're improving and so you got to be patient in order to be better braver and happier so maybe that should be the tagline better braver happier patient <laughs> i think that's what? too many words so dan how do you with all these other things going on with your life with the costs with you know mastering techniques etc and hitting plateaus and pushing through burnout is there any way that you, how do you stay patient? I think you have to be conscious of it to understand that what we're trying to do isn't usually done overnight. Uh, the people that have, or artists that have uh, years of experience are able to do things because of muscle memory and lots of practice. But for some of us, just hobbyists, uh, it takes a little bit longer for us to get to a point where we're happy in what we're creating. So we just have to learn and just be conscious of, hey, maybe I know it's not here yet. I know, you know, we have the internet that gives us, you know, how do I glaze? How do I put down layers? What colors should I use for my space marine or spaceship or airplane or something? It's all instantaneous. But when we want to replicate that or when we have or when we visualize what we want to create and it doesn't happen immediately, 
that creates other problems and other challenges for us, burnout. But knowing that we have to have the patience to get through it and persevere, I think makes us stronger and makes us better painters or hobbyists. We could probably do a whole entire show on that. Right, exactly. And that's really, and actually that's one of the things that is so important in order to kind of overcome the challenges of the hobby, you really have to develop a self-awareness. And the number one thing you have to do is you have to be honest with yourself. And I think that it's important to understand if you are an impatient person and like, you know, me, I struggled with this for a long time. You know, I thought, you know, boom, boom, I took a class from from Roman Laplatte. I should be an amazing painter. It doesn't work that way. I watched a YouTube video. I should be an amazing painter. It doesn't work that way. But I ha- it took me a while. And I actually feel like my I've, I've made huge improvements over the last few months because I've kind of put that crap on the shelf. I had to kind of take, I needed an ego check at some level. It's not, I not that I thought I was the world's best painter or anything along those lines, but I had to have a, a, a understanding of who I was, what I wanted to do in the hobby and realistically say, you know, I'm only going to get so be- much better because I can only paint a few hours. A week. That's, you know, I'm not, I can't paint 50 to 60 hours. I'm never going to do this for a living. There's no way this could match the income that I make in my real world job. God, I would love that, but that's just not going to happen. And so kind of becoming self-aware is such an important aspect of the hobby. And I think if you, the more self-aware you become, the better your art is going to be, the better, the easier you are to express yourself. You'll find your style because you know you, what you like, what you don't like, what you can do, what you can improve on, et cetera. And so that, that's such a, an important thing is to know who you are, know your limitations and understand them. Because if you don't know what's wrong, you can't fix it. Or if you don't know what you need to work on, you can't fix it. You can't become better. So Dan, we wanted to try something new this time. We wanted to see if we could get a response from those who are listening uh, to the podcast. So we're going to throw out a question out there. This time, what's the biggest challenge in the hobby that you face? Email us at listening to paint dry at gmail.com and let us know. And if you respond to us and let us know, we're going to read your mail, your email on the air. So Dan, tell me what's on your desk, what you're working on. Well, Mike, I'm sure that we'll be talking about this in a, in a future episode, but I did recently acquire a 3d printer and I've been spending a lot of time on it, just trying to figure out how it works and try to get good prints uh, working with some of the software. So I've really been spending a lot of time with that, and it's been a, very enjoyable. So that's the big thing. Uh, I have been using it for miniatures to practice my painting. So I've been uh, printing off uh, a lot of Battletech lately, and I've been actually just trying different kind of techniques out. So once they're printed and they look like crap because they didn't print them properly, I can use those as practice pieces. So I've been just trying out uh, contrast a little bit more. I've been playing with the the color interactions, mixing different kind of contrast colors together for one, and then putting a different base coat down and seeing what I can produce because I have an idea what I want. I just haven't been able to do it with just two or three colors or with just two or three types of paint. So I'm just playing around with it a little bit. Uh, I also have the my Sisters of Battle. I'm still plugging along on. Uh, they would probably just end up being just display pieces, and I'll put them in my uh, my cage with the rest of my uh, unused figures. Uh, but they'll look good. 
at least to me. Uh, and that is just about it, really. Uh, I do get some games in every once in a while. Most of my attention right now is trying to figure out how I can produce the best quality 3D miniatures without paying $25 a piece for them. So you, you recently went to a hobby swap, didn't you? At like what your hobby place in Fredericksburg? Yes. Um, there was a lot of full armies that went. There's usually a bunch of good guys that have painted armies or paint armies uh, from a rescue and and sell those off at a very reasonable price. I picked up a couple Dark Angels because that's just my first army. And whenever I can find some pieces, I pick some of those up. So they will be going into the purple vat of death and then I will strip them all. And I will repaint them probably green. That would be good for Dark Angels, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so what about you, Mike? What are you playing with? So right now, I am in the process of finalizing my entries for the Richmond IPMS. And so what I'm doing, I, I took an old piece that I'd done for my wife a couple of years ago. I haven't ent entered it into a contest or anything. Um, and I'm going to add a little more contrast to it, uh, clean it up. It's got a little bit of wear and tear on it um, and get it really nice for uh, for the diorama. Um, I'm going to enter my Space Marine Raptor Lieutenant. He's in pretty good shape. I need to highlight, do do some added highlights after his very uh, successful weekend at a, at a GW store. Um, I've, I've, I've done some ads to it and some cleanups to kind of make them a little bit better. Um, I'm also doing a speed painting project. They have a category for robots. And so I'm, I'm doing a Castellan robot, uh, as a speed painting project, doing some weathering on it using a, a chipping medium, which has been interesting because I've had a couple of times where in, um, I, I've gotten it wet and I kind of see some paint starting to, to chip already. I'm like, no, 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 wait, wait, I'm not done with the highlights yet. Um, <laughs> and so I'm trying to figure out, it's a super fun project because I'm doing it on uh, kind of a space, like a, almost like a lunar setting. And then I have a piece of plastic art as a backdrop. And so I'm going to paint kind of a space setting in the backdrop using the airbrush with a little bit of the foreground going into the painting. And so some of the ground is going to be painted into the background. Maybe, you know, we'll see if I can pull it off, but so far so good. Um, and then I'm going to see if I can, I've got some work done on this bust, for, uh, this Leah bust by Ouroboros miniatures, Equus line or Esquist line. That's really pretty. They have a great, so uh, the, the, one of the great categories that they have at the IPMS is non-military busts. And so I was hoping to do that, but I'm 50-50 I'm on that. But I'm getting there, you know, learning some new technique, techniques with weathering and stuff along those lines and always pushing contrast. Just a quick note before we get into this week's interview. Dan and I would love to advertise any of your Facebook groups, hobby painting groups, or painting groups, any of those out there. Drop us a line at listeningtopaintdry at gmail.com and we'll certainly try to do our best to get the word out. We'll throw an advertisement in his shows and stuff along those lines. So please let us know what you got going on. Listening to paint dry at gmail.com. So without further ado, listening to paint dry with Mike and Dan is proud to present an interview with award-winning artist, amazing teacher, and all-around fantastic guy, Michael Proctor. Michael Proctor, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So you know, it, it's awesome to get a chance to talk to you. I've admired your work on Facebook and on 
um, Instagram. And so, but I'm curious as to how did you get started in this world of kind of miniature painting? Wow, it was a couple of starts and stops. Um, when I was in middle school, we moved from California to Texas. And when you move, make that big a move, you don't really know anybody. So it was around Christmas time when I when we actually moved. And just sitting around, didn't have much to do. So we went to Michael's, um, Michael's MJ Designs at the time, and uh, walked down the aisle. I noticed a Dungeon Dwellers uh, paint set. It had a bunch of miniatures that had the game, and it had a bunch of little paints. And so, of course, I never read the rules of the game, um, just grabbed the miniatures. And that's why I spent my Christmas break painting those things. And then I yeah, got into middle school and um, met some people, met some friends that were playing D&D, really had no idea what that was. Um, but all of a sudden, here are those miniatures again. And then I you know, saw Grenadier and Ralph Partha and just really got into it. And then, as we all probably do, we do it for a little while, and then high school and college comes in, and we lose interest in it and move on to other things. But I had always kept, where even out after I got out of college, I always kept a couple of my little painted miniatures just around with me. They just seemed to just they keep tagging along. And then after college, I moved to um, Colorado, and my wife and I were going to move up. We were in Denver. We we're going to move up west into the mountains, into the foothills, a good ways. And our first house we lived at was at 9,400 feet elevation. So it was, the, it was the beginning of the summer, and it was getting close to winter. And I'm like, I need to find a hobby. I need to find something to do when we can't leave the house because it's snowing. And uh, she maybe even regretfully suggested um, – why don't you, what those little miniature things, those little, those little toy things, are those still around? So I went and did some investigation and went to a local game store and, and uh, just found that, yeah, they were still around. They're probably bigger than ever. Um, companies like Ralph Partha and Grenadier had gone away, but new companies like Reaper, to me, they were a new company was there. And then uh, companies like Confrontation and, of course, um, Games Workshop were around too. So that's really how I got back into it and just started off as a hobby and really got really liked just the whole relaxation part of it and painting. But again, your competitive side, of course, comes out where you're always wanting to do better, always wanting to get better. And I have a art degree background, um, but I really just wanted to make this more of my hobby and fun time and then got into meeting people and knowing people and entering competitions. And it just all kind of grew from there. That's awesome. You know, a lot of, we hear a lot of stories about people who kind of stop and start again and then just kind of realize how much they missed being a painter or being in the hobby of either gaming or painting. So that's kind of awesome. So when did it become something that you wanted to do competitively, like kind of take it to that next level instead of maybe just the hobby to stop yourself from being bored when you're snowed in? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I never, um, you know, as I just started feeling like, you know, I'm starting to get kind of good at this. Um, and we had in, in Denver area, there was a, a, a convention that kind of went away and now it's back again. But back when I was really trying, starting to get a little bit better, it was called Genghis Khan. And um, there was going to be painting classes. And my wife kept telling me, yeah, you're getting better, but you're kind of plateauing. Unless you take some classes, you're never going to get any better. So I was like, oh, there's this Genghis Khan thing. Let me take some classes. And, oh, there's a painting competition too. So I just brought um, a, a few miniatures that I had kind of slapped paint on and took some classes and 
And from that point, after taking a few classes and going, oh my God, these, this, these three classes I took just leveled up my painting ability. Um, entering a competition, I did okay. I didn't win anything, but you know, I placed all right. And uh, it was like, it kind of gave me the bug at that point. And then it became a challenge. All right, I'm gonna take these things and I'm gonna get better. And I'm gonna next year for Genghis Khan. Cause that was the only thing I was going to is once a year, I was just gonna go to Genghis Khan and see how I did. I, I, I just wanna win a category or I just wanna place in a category. Those were my goals. And then it just kept snowballing from there and there. And then I just, I don't know, it just became more of an obsession. There started to be cool mini or not out there, or at least that's when I found it. And then there were some articles out there, very basic, but the cool mini or not site, I, I would see other paint jobs and, and go, wow, that's cool. How I want to figure out how they did that. So a lot of it was just taking a painted piece on a picture of it and then um, printing it out um, so I could look at it while I painted it and then just try to copy it as much, as best as I could. And then I was never really good at perfectly copying anything, um, but then it just ended up being me trying to do something and it just turned into my style, I guess. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I, I, you sound very similar to me. That my, my whole intent was only to just go to Nova Open, which is 20 minutes away from me. But now uh -huh. I'm like, oh, I want to go to Reapercon. I want to go to Adepticon. I want to go all these places. So it's interesting. I like the, the the parallels are awesome. It makes me feel like I'm not alone in this. <laughs> oh, you're so yeah. I, the same story I, I've told. I've had so many other people say the same thing to me. And then after Genghis Khan, then the ReaperCon, which is just in Texas, um, relatively close from to Colorado. We had a bunch of people in our little Colorado painting group that started going down there, and uh, I was like, okay, that's the next step. I want to go there, um, and just started you know, figuring out a way to go in. And then my first, first two years going there, I was just a general, um, entrant, um, someone just showing up, taking classes and entering the competition like I was doing at Genghis Khan. But it was neat to see the level from a local state level, then to more of a regional, almost national level to see just the level of people there, the level of entries, the level of classes. Yeah. It, it helped me continue to grow. Yeah, yeah. As this process for you has gone on, you've kind of taken on some roles too, right? Like last year, you were the head. I believe you when when we talked, you said head poobah in charge of the judging at ReaperCon last year, right? right? And so, and so from where you started out there to where uh, I don't know if the people who are listening actually know this, but ReaperCon had over a thousand painted entries in this year. How kind of that's kind of crazy, <laughs> right? That, that many entries. <laughs> Well, it's super. It, my my title um, is what I think it's called executive director or something out of the painting competition. But you said Grand Poobah or Head Cat Wrangler is really the main reason main reason for my title. The ReaperCon's great. Um, they do a first, second, and third Sophie Trophy for their own um, categories. They're for their own miniatures, um, which is how most competitions do. There's a painters division, a diorama, an open. Um, but the other neat thing that they started doing years, few more than a few years ago, was like historical shows. They, it's called the MSP Open, where you enter a piece, and then that piece is not judged against anything. It's more judged on the standard. So um, a lot of historical shows do this, where you'll end up with, oh, yeah, you have a gold-level entry piece, or you have a silver level, or you have a bronze. And it's kind of if you keep coming every year, 
but there's a lot of people that will go, okay, this year I got a bronze and now I'm really working up to get to a silver or now I have silver. I'm trying to work up to get a gold. So, it, and there's a lot of feedback and what have you, but yeah, my role within the painting competition was I was a judge for a long time and still help out with judging, but I wanted to make sure that whatever this painting competition was for Reaper was something that was fair and encouraging. I think that's the most important thing. I never want, um, I never want ReaperCon painting competition to be exclusive or snooty or anything like that. I want that to be all inclusive where anybody should be able to enter, um, then be shown kind of where they are with their level and then provided feedback on how they can get better. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine uh, a thousand entries and each year it's getting, it seems like the art is just getting better and better. Like the the level in 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 the world and in the U.S. it just seems like it keeps up popping. Oh, now, it's crazy! I'm, the the level and and creativity of people every year is just amazing. I'm like, so many times I see things like, "Damn, what did I think of that? That is so awesome! I, that is just that is just so creative and and inspiring. It's really cool to see that stuff, and it's really see how much painting miniature painting has gone from super smooth blends super nice and tightness to more artistic styles and more true creativity and adding textures and adding information to a piece um it's gone away from like it needs to be absolutely technically perfect into more of a creative artistic pieces which is what i really like about it right it's certainly yeah i feel like i'm never going to attain that level of smooth blend but artistically I can have a lot of fun and right. feel like I can still compete. Totally. What was the transition like from being a painter to then being a teacher as well? Because I know you also teach classes at ReaperCon as well. I do. Um, you know, a lot of it is the neat thing about as you're getting better and as you're developing your skills, I really encourage just to even start off teaching a basic painting class, because what it'll do, it makes you think about your process and how you go about painting your miniature, whether it's just the basics and base coating and layering and highlighting, or if you're getting more specifically into a lot of, I teach, I, I teach a lot of different subjects, but one thing that I'm kind of known for is shaded metallics and then um, compositional basing and, um, some topics that not as many people tend to teach is why I gravitate towards those, but it helps you think through the process of when to kind of make that bridge over from just painting into actually trying to convey what I'm thinking about when I'm doing it is breaking it down and going, okay, how do I explain how I got from step A to Z without just saying, okay, like you, I heard one of your podcasts, you're like, okay, here's steps on uh, base coat. Or no, the, how to draw an owl. You were talking about right. that. Yeah. And, and how do you figure out the middle part to explain it? Um, and every class, of course, is a little bit different. You have to, while you're teaching, you can't just assume that everybody's at the same level. You're going to have people coming in and taking your class from beginner to advanced. Um, and how do you customize what you're talking about? Not for each person in particular, you know, if I got somebody that's more of a beginner and they're in the class, I'm not going to discourage them from being in there. But when I, I'll walk around and do little one-on-ones with them as the class is going and try to see where they are and can I help them in a couple, two, three tips to get that next step better. You know what I mean? They may not be able to get the whole subject, but if they can walk away feeling great about the class and feeling that they've got 
some tidbits from it and some pointers for the next time. I and mean, that's, I, I think that's a win at that point. Um, you had any kind of pointers for taking a class, like for taking a painting class? Cause I know when I first went in uh, the first class I ever took, I wish I had better. I wish I had done a bunch of different things. Um, uh, and so I, I, and it's, I know there's a, I've gotten some feedback from new people, new people in the painting who have listened and they wanted to kind of know, how do you take a class? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, here's the thing that I talk to when I go, when I'm going to teach a class, the first thing I, I say in the class is I'm teaching you a brand new subject, a brand new idea, something that you wanted to learn that maybe you're not really good at. Um, you should not be have the expectation that when you walk out of here, you're going to be doing it perfectly. If anything, you're going to struggle during the class because you're learning something brand new and just be patient and let that learning process happen. You know what? You learn more from your failures than you do your successes. So it's okay to suck at it. It really is. It's probably better if you're learning something. You're like, man, I just can't do this. But relax, take a deep breath, and just just follow along. And when you do it the first time, like when I teach shaded metallics, I will um, take a miniature and just like grab a, a little small piece of armor, and we'll do a little shaded metallic kind of demo on it. And then like everybody has that and we'll spend the most time just on the one little item. And I'm like, okay, do it again. And I want you to try to remember what you did. Feel free to ask me and then we'll do it again. And then I'll be walking around and showing them pointers. And then I can see how they're working at it. And then if we have time and we generally do, I'm like, do it a third time. And it's funny by the time they do it a third time, you can see the difference between the three because they, they're relaxing and not worried so much about the steps. They feel more comfortable in the steps, and now they're actually painting and being creative. And this, that goes along with the entire class as well. If you're going to spend the money to take a class, um, practice it afterwards. You know, if, if it's a class ReaperCon, it's generally like two hours, a little bit less. Um, after you take the class, you have a break afterwards. Um, go get some lunch, relax a little bit, and then come back and uh, practice that practice it a little bit more while you're at the convention or what have you. The other thing too is um, watch. I get a, I get a big kick out of this watching how other people paint, um, how they use their brush, how they mix their paints, how they apply the paint to the miniature. It'd be amazing. It's amazing. Sometimes you can watch on videos and the way the camera angles are, it's kind of similar, but to watch them in person to paint something, I, you know, I paint with Aaron Lovejoy a lot and then with um, Rhonda Bender and I painted with Jen Haley and Marika Reimer and people like that. I'm, um, everybody, Derek Schubert, everybody paints differently. The way they apply the paint to the miniature is just different. Take it. And some people are like, nah, I don't want to do it that way. Or you can watch somebody and go, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I want to try to incorporate that into how I paint. But at the end of it, it's kind of a long-winded answer here, but at the end of it, um, okay. don't, don't forget to have fun. You know, that's why we're doing all this. And even if you're painting for competitions, it should still be fun. And if you're starting to get stressed about it, take a deep breath and relax a little bit. And know that this is just fun. And a painting competition is just a painting competition. It's not that big a deal. Right. Yeah, it's okay to take a little break, too. There's no, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. And I think that's a lot of times people get so stressed out with stuff and I, I, I'm guilty of it myself. Um, so it's nice to hear, you know, kind of just relax and, and 
Sounds like just enjoy the class and learn, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rel um, re enjoy the class, learn, know that it's not going to be perfect. And if it's if it's perfect, if if you're doing really well in it, I'd ask the I'd ask the question is, yeah, you're doing well, but are you just using your own techniques in this class? Are you learning what the new techniques that this teacher is trying to teach you? That's a good point too. That 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 is a very good point. Are you paying attention, or are you doing the same stuff that you would you had been doing before, right? And, and learning. Right. That's a, that's actually an excellent point. Um, so I'm going to do something different here. I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball because I just sure. thought of this question. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this no has, this has nothing. To, no, this is a fun question. All right. Um. So if you were to go to Ann Forrester, who's the mixologist for paint at Reaper. And say, Anne, I want a color named after me. Uh -huh. What color would it be and why? I already have that. Um, oh my, well, okay. And, and Anne's a good friend of mine. Um, so I have, um, it's, it's, it was named Proctor Punch Purple. Um, a few Reaper cons ago, um, we had a carnival theme. And it and ended up being a Reaper con exclusive color, and it was carnival purple. Um, but yeah, I already, and it was a super dark purple. Um, I find that uh, the purple color, especially a super dark one, is just so great with so many colors. It's great to interact with green. It's a great shadow color for red. It's a great shadow color for blue. Um, it's it's great in adding in life and vibrancy into skin tones, whether they're human or monster or whatever. Um, if I have a kind of... Reaper's still working it out, but I was working with the art director, Ron Hawkins. There's going to be some paint sleeves coming out in the next, I don't know, I don't know when, but it'll, they'll come out <laughs> at some point. Um, but it'll be an eight, eight, eight paint sleeve that has, or my kind of like my go-to colors. And the very first color that I added on there, well, second color I added on there was the purple. Nice. Um, it was just, I, I use it on everything that I use. I can find, even if it's something you're like, I don't see purple in that, um, in the shadows of the red and the shadows of, uh, or just in the skin tone thing or a little tidbit to a little bag or a little whatever, um, there'll be purple in it somewhere. Yeah. But that's my favorite color. Nice. So, so Proctor punch purple is kind of yeah. like your Frank's red hot. You put that on everything, right? right? <laughs> I put it on everything. And the other color I use, and if anybody's ever seen any of my little, videos I've done with Reaper or whatever, my little painting things is uh, blue liner. Blue and liner. Okay. Yeah. Blue liner. And um, the one kind of level up trick that I will talk about whenever I can in any critique I ever give or, or a class, regardless of the subject matter, I will talk about blue liner and lining the folds of your miniatures to bring in contrast. Cause people always talk about you, you get a critique and everyone says you need more contrast. Well, Right. What does that really mean? You know, oh, you need higher highlights and deeper shadows. Well, I'm pushing these shadows and stuff, but I think a great way is in the natural world for you and me, we have our t-shirts on or whatever, and there's, you have your t-shirt and then they're on your sleeve and it goes down to your skin. Um, there's no line there. But if you look at graphic novels or anime, if you see the separation between clothing layers or whatever, you'll see that they put a little black dark line and that just helps sell the difference between um the, the, the one item and the second item because in the big world we're all big huge normal sized people but when we shrink things down to tiny little scale 30 millimeters 45 millimeters whatever we need to be selling that contrast and that interest and so adding that super dark line in between 
then having a highlight right next to it is going to help you pop your highlights. And, and that simple thing is the whole theory behind uh, non-metal metal. However, you don't have to all, just think of it that way. Why does non-metal metal painting look so cool? Is because of that high contrast thing. Now, can you take that mentality and apply it to um, skin or fur or or uh, clothing or whatever? You can still take that. Just don't overdo it so everything looks metally, but um, you can add that interest a little bit more. Right. That's a great tip, actually. And not using a, a straight black can add some visual interest, too, I would imagine, too. Yeah, I, I blue liner is if you color theory, right, then um, cold colors recede, warm colors advance to your eye. Um, so I like a blue liner because it's dark blue and it has that coldness that will push back into it. Um, but if you don't have that and you just have a good solid black, it'll work just as well. Um, so but I like the blue liner just a little bit pop, but sometimes I'll throw in a little flat, a little black, but black tends to be flatter. So it'll just stop where the blue will tend to pull yourself in a little bit more visually. Nice. Very cool. Thank you. That's a great, those are great tips. And I'm looking <laughs> forward to that, uh, that, that sleeve coming out. Cause I would definitely get, you'd have to get a copy of that. Right. Um, I thought I was going to throw you with that when you're going to be like, hmm, I don't know. I love all the colors, you know, <laughs> uh, the, the neat thing. And I do a lot of work with Reaper and do a lot of work for them and what have you, but I've gotten to know, know all the folks there and then, and Anne was like one of my first contacts in with Reaper. I went to a ReaperCon uh, 12 years ago or whatever and did well um, in the competition. And then she actually approached me and said, hey, would you like to paint some stuff for us down the road? I'm like, yeah, sure. And then so we got to know each other. And then I got to know the art director, Ron Hawkins, and the, and the owner, Ed Pugh, and Dave Pugh, the brothers. And just one thing led to another, but yeah, any, anytime we go in for various Reaper events, I'll always spend time with Anne and see what's the new colors going out. Hey, can you do this? Um, and we've had other colors kind of made for us or colors will get discontinued over time that we think they're awesome, a small group of painters, but they just don't sell well. Um, so they'll get discontinued and we'll go in begging her, hey, can you remake this color? Can you remake this color? <laughs> So it's kind okay. of fun. Yeah, it's super fun. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good segue because I am kind of curious about how some of the process goes when you do kind of freelance work for Reaper or for Dark Sword. Now, so they come to you and say, hey, can you paint this miniature for us? How much of a guideline? Do they give you artistic license, a kind of a guideline, or is there – do they establish – what kind of I – I hate to say expectations, but – right kind of their what what are they asking you to do well expectations isn't far off um so when reaper and dark sword are a little bit different um reaper uh i kind of will see what's coming up and i am really good friends with their core sculpting group jason weeby and gene van horn and bobby jackson and uh, Julie Guthrie and Bob Rodolfi and Kevin Williams. And I have to list all their names because I don't want any, I, any of them to think that I favor one over the other because <laughs> they're all great. And I'll see things that they are in the process of sculpting. Uh, they have a concept art artist, Izzy Italian Collar, and she just does the most awesome art. And I'll even just see the art and I'll talk to Ron. I'm like, whoever gets this to sculpt, I want to paint this when it comes out. Um, I just finished up uh, Black Sting, the Wyvern, 
that was part of their bones for Kickstarter. He, Ron needed some, uh, needed a painted image of it for box art. And so when I, when he's like, Hey, can you, do you have time to do this? Sure. That's awesome. I love this piece. It's sculpted by Julie Guthrie, the queen of dragons. And I, yeah, sure. I want, let me, let me add that. But I asked him, so what do you want to look like? He goes, well, the name's black sting. (laughs) 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 I'm like, okay. And, uh, anything else? Well, it should be dark. I'm like, ah, okay. So there's that art direction level. And mm-hmm. it, and it's great because I think he just said he knows what I've done for him. So he's not, he just says, go for it. Now, during that process, I think he wants to see where I'm taking it. Cause I have um, taken a piece a certain direction and he said, no, why don't you try this? And, or why don't you go? I was thinking more of this direction. Um, so yeah, I was dealing um, and, and it's, it's a great relationship. He's super supportive. He kind of will let me go, go crazy in what I want to do. But if it's totally, if I've gone off in a direction that isn't part of his large scale vision, he'll redirect me in, in the right way. Um, now, do they so, give you a couple of copies of the figure or? Depends. Or... Yeah, it depends. So, um, it, if it's early in the process, um, like for bones five, I've painted a couple of things for them. With the Bones 5, they're going to, they have to send in the China, they have to make the mold and it comes back in plastic. A couple of the things that I'll tend to paint ahead of time will be digital prints. Um, They'll run off a digital print. They'll usually run off two. They'll get one cleaned off that goes off to China that gets approved. And then there's another one uh, that that I'll take and then I'll work on that one and have to clean it up and everything. Um, Or... Sometimes they'll send it off, and if it's a larger piece, uh, get resin copies made initially, so they can send to China a resin piece when they need to scan them, and then I'll get a resin piece and I'll actually paint it. I won't. A lot of times, the and the box art stuff isn't necessarily always the bone stuff. A lot of times, it's resin just due to timing. Um, right. But with that said, uh, there was there's been a number of them, mud gullet, um, which is the froggy thing with the tentacles. Um, <laughs> there's that one is the one I can think of off the top of my head, but yeah, that was a bones piece and it was awesome. Um, there's been other ones that were just straight bones. It's what they had. That's what they sent. And um, they're like, can you do this? And I like doing that too, because that's exactly what the people are going to get when they fulfill these things. And I, I want them to be able to feel like they can do what I did on that model. Cause they totally can. Um, and so, yeah, but to be these days, initially with the bone stuff, there was a little bit difference in the quality, but now with bones black and all that stuff, once they're prime, they're really spot on to a resin or, um, um, a digital print, digital prints sometimes are a lot harder to paint just because you gotta, um, you've got to clean and you and I had this discussion before yeah. this, how much I hate prepping miniatures. Amen, <laughs> I'm, brother. Amen. I'm right there with you. I hate it. <laughs> I hate doing it. Um, but yeah, when you do a digital print, you got to really do a lot of prep work on that as well. Right. All the supports and stuff. Yeah. Uh, Dan, yeah. my co-host just, uh, is just gone down the rabbit hole of a 3d printer. Mm. And so, uh, he was kind of like, uh, this is not what I expected. <laughs> no, I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. I have only X amount of time to have fun with my hobby. I don't want to spend time. I, I see cleaning and prepping miniatures as time away from actually painting them. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So there's the commission service that I need. I need to find somebody who just preps them, sends them back to me. Um, right. 
Right. So a kind of uh, along the same lines of um, the kind of painting uh, for uh, for a studio. Um, when you did that first piece for Reaper after Ann asked you, how mm-hmm. nervous were you? Oh, extremely, yeah. extremely. Um, it was Maurice Gray Shroud. It was uh, a witch that had red armor. She kind of looked like the superhero character Electra or something like that. Or oh, no, the Scarlet Witch. That's what she reminded me okay. of. And she has a bunch of ghosts and stuff coming up. And it was a Julie Guthrie piece. And Julie has been sculpting forever. Like when I was painting in the first iteration of things, she sculpted for Ralph Partha. She sculpted for Grenadier. I knew the name even before I started getting back into painting seriously again. And then so here I am um, at ReaperCon meeting her in person. You know, you're like, oh, wow, you're really cool. I've known you for long. I respect you, you know, getting to meet one of your idols or whatever, right? Um, and so then that's the first piece I get to paint is, is a Julie Guthrie piece. I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. But yeah, I spent, I don't know, um, 50, 60 hours on it <laughs> just to make sure. And it totally didn't make back the money that I, and the, that I got paid to do it for these pieces versus the time dedicated to it. But yeah, it right. was like, there's my audition. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kill it on this audition. And I think I did w- pretty well on it mm-hmm. um, for the time and where I was, I was, I'm still very proud of the piece. It sits in the Reaper case at Reaper and, kind of fun to see it when i go in it's like oh yeah there's my first piece that's cool that's awesome yeah. that's awesome yeah we talk dan and i talk about it constantly he wants to venture into that world of commission painting and i tried uh i did 25 miniatures for a friend's D campaign mm-hmm. and i think it might have been I, I enjoyed in concept doing it i'm glad i did it for him uh, i'm never doing anything like that again that was the most painful painting process oh. ever I was like, okay, I'm done. I know, I know where I want to go with painting and it's not commissions. (laughs) And, and for me, I have a day job. I have a real, what I call a real world job because this is my fantasy world, right? And painting miniatures. I just really, this is my passion and my fun. Um, But my commission stuff starts and stops with, I do some stuff for Reaper when they need me to, and I'll do an occasional piece for Dark Sword when they need me to. And that's it. The rest of the time is me in the hobby having fun. Um, and I've gotten to a point where you're you're going to get pieces that you're not necessarily psyched up about with commissions. But I don't I don't want to make it. I never wanted to make it a full time gig or make it feel like a job. You know, um, that's I I have so much respect for those folks out there that do it full paint doing painting miniatures full time. And I don't, I couldn't do it. I don't have the whatever to do that. I need a break. I need to be able to go. I mountain bike a lot. So I, I need to be able to have time just to go get on my mountain bike and go ride and to, to not think about it and not have the pressures of, oh, I need to, I need to do my day job and then stop and turn around and do my second job and paint all these miniatures for folks. Do you know what I mean? So uh, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's, it's, People can do it as employment, but yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. It's got to stay as a hobby for me, you right. know. But um, if I said, okay, Michael, pick a miniature and paint it, what what would be the first miniature that popped to your mind that you would want to paint? Like it could be kind uh, of a type. A oh, type. A type? Uh, yeah. You know, I will if I'm just going to grab something to paint. I will generally paint a bust. 
Um, I feel those are just so different in um, scale or interest or, I don't know, subject matter, I guess is a better term to use, um, than your standard 30 millimeter gaming miniature or whatever. It just, it makes you think of things a little bit different. You can go crazy on the skin of a, and a face and really add a lot more interest on a 110 style scale bust than you can on a tiny little miniature or tiny little 28, 30 millimeter scale. Um, I'd probably be the first thing I'd grab, gravitate towards. And I always, in subject matter, um, it'll always be some kind of monster or some kind of mean looking thing. Um, there's a <laughs> lot of, there's a lot of talent to people out there painting pretty ladies and, and, uh, those kind of things. I like the monsters and the beasts and the critters and stuff like that. That's my kind of go-to. Hey, it's whatever makes you happy, right? You know, right. that's kind of, right. that's that's awesome. I'm going to ask, but I know, I think I know the answer. Do you have a favorite piece that you've done? Uh, it's probably one of the most recent pieces that I've done. They switch. Um, there are certain pieces that um, I when going through the process that they really spoke to me, there's a piece that I entered in a Depticon. Um, you and I talked about this a little bit before, right. but uh, it was a diorama piece and it was based on um, a story that my wife was going through. She had just lost her mom. And before we had met her dad had passed away. So she said to me after she lost her mom, she was, I'm an orphan now. I'm like, Oh my God, this has really struck me. And how do you, what do you say to to console someone like that. You say, don't be sad. Don't hear it. It'll be okay. But how are you, you're really going to make, you're just, you just need to be there. So I conceptualized this piece and it was a little girl in a Victorian kind of setting and she's lost and she has her little suitcase and, um, and there's this hunchback kind of guy around in the corner and he's holding a little teddy bear and he looks scary. So I always felt so awkward trying to console her is really where this came from. Um, and that's probably, if I had, you nailed me down and said, what is the very favorite piece you've ever done in your entire life? It's that one, because there's a lot of thought behind it. There's a lot of story. There's little tidbits around. There's a little, even some internal references just between her and I on, on the piece. Um, so yeah, it's probably my most proud piece. Funny story about that is I was just, I probably spent, I don't know, you Eight, 80 to 100 hours doing the whole piece, conceptualizing, designing the base, converting the miniatures, painting them up and everything. And I took them to it. I took it to Adepticon. Most proud thing I've ever done. It gets entered into Adepticon in the diorama division, which I don't know, I guess usually is one of the harder. Um, this was crystal brush time um, where one of the harder uh, categories. It didn't make first cut. And I was a little heartbroken, you know, I was like, I spent yeah, all this time on it. it and didn't make first cut. Um, and, but it was a good, it was a good lesson because I was like, you know, that's okay. Judging subjective. And I think that's, I always try to remind people of that is like, I know you put all your time into this and just because it didn't get what you needed it to get or what you wanted it to get, doesn't make that piece or you any less. Cause then I turn around and I take it to ReaperCon and it turns around and it wins overall best in show there. So, you know, it was, it, and it, it's, it took it to a couple of other um, content, uh, conventions and it did really well too. But the, that, the, the winning or not didn't make it a favorite piece for me. It was more of the story of it. Even if it never did anything, it still would probably, it would definitely be my uh, favorite piece. 
can I, I would love it if you uh, if you either sent uh, some pictures to us so we could post that on uh, the Instagram page. I think that would be great for the okay. listeners to see because that's a it's it's a I've seen it. It's on your Clever Crow page. Yeah. And, right. And uh, I've seen it. It's a it's a wonderful piece. And uh, hearing the story behind it is really touching. Um, so that's a, that's amazing, man. That's uh, well, oh, done. bravo. I'm sure your wife was very appreciative of that. Oh, yeah. It, it, I, when I, I was working on the whole thing and I never really told her what I was doing until it was all together. Mm-hmm. And then I said, I want to show you this. And, and she looked at it and she was like kind of making a reference. And her, the only thing that she got it is it said on, there's a sign on it said Lord, Lord Oliver's home for orphans and there's an arrow pointing and that's where she's looking to go. Um, mm. Her mom had had a little dog at, and named Oliver that we adopted. So she was like, why is Oliver's name on this thing? So then she kind of started putting two and two together. So I watched her interpret the story. You know, right. and so she could read in story, which was that was fun. If you can do a diorama that tells a story and people can see that story or maybe even make their own story up, I think that's that's when it's kind of fun to take all these various little toys and put them together and make something make something interesting out of them. So yeah, I'll send you pics. That'd be, that'd be neat if you showed us. We'd love to, and that uh, we'd be honored to. And that's you nailed what I love about miniature painting is the narrative side of it. You know the 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 storytelling and the the fun. So that's man. I have to yeah take a deep breath here because I kind of I, I heard that story last night and it got me and it, or the other night and it still got me again just now. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks. That's really nice. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> kind of want to touch a little bit on the competition side of it, and uh, I, I know that. Um, I don't really want to talk about judging because it's subjective, like you had said, and you had pointed that out in our other conversation. But what I wanted to ask you about was kind of some of the pitfalls. And uh, I, I hate the word mistake because I am definitely in the world of Bob Ross, a student of Bob Ross, that there's only mm-hmm. happy accidents. But um, what kind of things do people who are new competitors or new to competition painting would be a better way to phrase it. What kind of mistakes or errors do they kind of make when they kind of first get in or what are common things that you see? So the, um, I think the number one thing is the last minute paint job, right? The rushing to finish the entry prior to the competition. Um, I've done that so many times before and I've, guarantee you that the majority of time I do that, it doesn't place. It doesn't even come close because I think having spending enough time and planning your piece, if you really want to, like, I mean, I'm going to bring it to the show and I'm going to bring the best piece I possibly can. Well, in order to do that, you need to have time into it. And if you are able to finish a piece uh, a few weeks to maybe a month or so prior to the competition, let it set and then look at it and take a break from it. Um, because you'll be so far into the piece, you can't see what's right or wrong with it. Um, and then take a break from it and then bring it back maybe a few weeks before the competition, just with the intent of touching up. And then you can find maybe some of the errors. Have a small core group of people that you respect and trust um, that are hopefully a, a, at your level or above and just say, hey, can you, do you mind giving me some feedback on this? And I, and I, I focus on core group because there are those folks that just send it out on, on social media and send out all these, uh, and they get a million little 
critiques back, um, then you're changing everything. And then is it still your piece? Um, if you have that core group, those people know who you are and how you're painting and what you want to do. They can help direct you to achieve the little things. I have like, um, I have a little group that I'm um, Facebook with, and we have a little message group called Paint Pals. It's myself, Rhonda Bender, Ali Liu, and uh, Jane Greenwald. All, uh, all three of them have also painted for Reaper and for Dark Sword as well. And I've got a piece that I'm really like, this is going to be a key piece for me. I'll send them pics. I'm like, pick it apart. Tell me what I'm missing. And mm -hmm. that's what it is. And then another thing too is um, I will tend to paint things throughout the year just for myself. And then when ReaperCon, for instance, comes up, I'll like, ah, oh, there's the three things that I'm most proud of that I painted this year. I'll take those with me and I'll enter them, right? Because those are what you loved and that's what you put everything into. And there wasn't really any true intent and entering them. Um, so that's a strategy that's worked well for me. And then, but anybody that's known me for a while, especially when I was really doing a ton of competitions is I, they joked as the shotgun approach, I'll enter in every category. Um, <laughs> if you're, <laughs> if you're prolific and, and at the time I was, yeah, uh, that works, um, <laughs> to try to do that. But if you spread yourself too thin sometimes, then nothing else, nothing comes out great. Um, so just focus on a few good things. Um, and like, like, like we said earlier, if you don't do as well as you think you should have done, get feedback. If there's a couple of people that are, you really respect their painting, get feedback from them. But also know just because somebody's really good at painting, they may not be necessarily good or feel comfortable giving feedback. You know, nobody, right. I think most people don't want to hurt feelings. And sometimes I think some people come across as a little arrogant or whatever. I found those folks tend to maybe be a little bit shy and they don't really know how to say anything. Cause I mean, none of us want to say, yeah, well, you know, that sucks. <laughs> you never want to do that, <laughs> but you want to, you want to try to help them out. Right. So, right. um, but so get focused on, I am again, I'm just rambling now again, a lot of things, but, um, that's okay. Yeah, have a great stuff. yeah, have a Important. good time doing it, and uh, and enjoy it. And whatever the result is, if you can take some feedback from somebody you really respect afterwards and apply it to the next one, it's a journey, right? It's a path, and you just continue down it. And don't let don't let a piece that you love more than anything that you spent your entire you know all this time on just because it doesn't make a first cut dissuade you or discourage you. Right. And it's amazing, too, that uh, people think that once they've entered a piece into a competition, they can't make it better. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I've heard a couple of people like, well, I entered it into something already. I can't work on it. I'm like, why not? You've got feedback. Now, you know, you know what to do with it. Why wouldn't you do it? You know, <laughs> I, I you know? yeah, definitely. And you can you can go back and you can tweak that piece. But I will also say at the same time, um, you're done with that piece now Do do what you've learned and apply it to the next piece. You know, um, you, if it's just a few little touch-ups here and there and, Oh yeah, you missed some lining here. Or you missed a highlight here or whatever. Fine. Um, you can touch your own piece up, but my suggestion usually is, is that is that piece you did at that point of, of your development. Um, now you're next, now you're ready for the next step. And so do another one. And then I, 
I'll bet you money the next one that you do, if you put that much time and heart into it, you're gonna, it's going to be better than the one before. So you have it next to it. If you keep working on the same one, you're never going to be able to see your progression. And I think it's – I have a little – I have a couple cases in my office of my, uh, my little studio where I paint, and I put most of my stuff in chronological order. So the top shelf is my most current stuff, and then as the years go by, I'll, tr I'll start pushing them down. So I can look and see what I did four years ago versus this year. That's great. Yeah, keeping a comparison for sure. They have to yeah. see where you are. You know, yeah. and sometimes it's hard as an artist to see it yourself. You know, like I find it's like uh, when they say you edit, when you read something three times, you start to read it from memory. And mm -hmm. so, like, I feel like that's kind of the same way with, with, with miniatures is that once you've painted something, you know, I, I can't see a lot of difference between miniatures for me. But then I have people that are point that can point them out for me <laughs> and say, "This is what's better." You know, you've learned this. Um, yeah, so and because you're not painting in a vacuum, and you're getting feedback from folks, I think that's really important too. If you want to grow, don't you know? It, we all paint. We all start painting in our little uh, basements or corner rooms or wherever, um, and that's how we start learning our chops and learning the hobby. But it's good to go out and paint with folks, or go to conventions and, and ask questions, or whatever. And just because something looks good in a picture online doesn't mean that that's what it really looks like in life. Right. And that's what, yeah, that, that's a very good point. Very good point. So um, I don't want to keep you too much longer. We've already been, well, it's almost an hour. Um, so, but I, I would like to end with uh, this kind of question for you and you've kind of covered it already, but um, our motto for the show is better, braver, and happier. Uh -huh. And so is there anything that, that you would want to add to help our listeners kind of move in that direction? You know, if you're not having fun doing it, why? Right? I think that's the key thing that I even have to remind myself all the time. Um, why did you get into this is to have a good time and to have paint, to paint and be creative. I think sometimes all the social media postings, all of the comparisons with the you know, the hot or not kind of websites, you know, um, <laughs> yep. that, that can get you down or you see what other people are posting up. Who cares what other people are posting up and you, if, unless you're inspired by them, but they, that should never be a discouraging, this discouraging to you. Um, it should be, Oh, that's cool. I want to try to do that. And you, do, you never know how much time that these people have spent and, Maybe if you're new into the hobby, these people that are killing it, doing a great job, have probably been painting for a large portion of their life um, or have art backgrounds or have all this other stuff. Compare yourself to yourself and how you're improving if that's what you want. Now, um, with that all being said, I, uh, I, I don't play a lot of games, a lot of board games or anything like that. I, I play D&D &D with my, um, re the Reaper folks a couple times a year, and that's the extent of my D&Dness. Um, but I will, I will, every time I show up, I try to show up with a new little D and D character and it is, I purposefully will do tabletop ish quality for my characters because it's mm -hmm. just fun and then I don't have to worry about it. And right. that's, that's the fun thing. So yeah. And I've just been painting this week and, um, not doing any commission stuff and just painting random things that most people, I probably won't even post up on uh, social media or anything. I'll just keep them for myself. Now you had said something, and we had, when we did our pre previous talk, uh, you had said something that kind of stuck with me. That 
when you post something or an artist posts something and one of the response in the comments is, I want to throw my brushes away or break my brushes, that that kind of stings a little. It does. It does. Because I, if I know the majority of the time they're meaning that as a compliment and I, I, under, I take it that way, but I really hope that none of them really mean that because I think I would like to be, um, and I, I want to be encouraging to people to try to do better because I didn't learn how to paint all these things at, um, by myself. I had lots and lots of people give me direction and pointers and tips and encouragement. Um, so I'd like to do that as well. And the last thing I ever want to be is just uh, perceived as discouraging somebody from trying to do better. You know what I mean? And right. uh, yeah, I want them to go. I, I want them to say, wow, I really like what you did. I want to, I'm going to try to do that in my own piece. When people say that, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome because that's exactly the way I see. Um, I God, was fortunate enough to take a class with Sergio Calvo last year. Um, fantastic thing. And then they'll, these Europeans will come by um, usually after Adepticon or whatever, and they'll do a little tours. You get a chance to pop into people like Sergio Calvo or Carol um, just a couple of names I could think of top of my head. Um, they're great because they just bring this different mentality than what we may be used to as Americans to think about art. I mean, Sergio grew up around art, has been exposed by art his entire life. Um, and he just brings a new kind of fresh perspective to it as well. But with that said, I mean, there's a ton of great American painters out there that are doing classes, they're doing Patreons and stuff like that. So um, you know, if you want to learn that way, and if you're a good visual learner that way, definitely sign on to them and try them out. And if they work for you, great. If they don't move on to another one. Right. That's the beauty of it. There are so many that it's like a buffet, uh -huh. <laughs> right? You can just somebody you're like, I really like how they do. And then, um, for instance, subscribe on them, throw them a few dollars, support what they're doing. Um, and then if, once you kind of get it, then you're like, yeah, I only have limited funds because like you've referenced before, this hobby isn't cheap. Um, so, and then find somebody else to latch onto and then practice the things that you're doing. But again, always have fun. And then um, if anybody's listening and want to find me out on uh, my Facebook page, Clever Crow, um, if you ever want to send me messages or whatever, and I just for some advice or whatever, I'm always happy and eager to say, hey, this is what I think. This is looking great or whatever. And here's, here's maybe a couple of things you could do. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for, for making that offer. That's, you know, it's, it's intimidating to approach artists sometimes, but the amazing thing is so many are approachable, you know, <laughs> so many will give you the feedback. They may not have a ton of time to really analyze your work, but you know, a, a tip here and there is invaluable. You know, right. we're sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dan and I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out, Michael. It's been a, uh, it's been very educational. Awesome. Good. That was fun. That's first, my first uh, podcast. So, We'd like to thank Michael Proctor from Clever Crow Studios for joining us today. Follow him on Facebook and Instagram at Clever Crow Studios. Also, look at our Instagram feed at Listening to Paint Dry, and you will see pictures of this amazing diorama that he talked about and the story behind it. It's just unbelievable. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your painting journey with us. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Listening to Paint Dry. And also you can email us with any comments, concerns, questions, thoughts, or ideas for the shows. Let us know what's going on, what you're working on at listening to at gmail.com. 
We'll be back next week with a mini episode of a review of the Richmond International and Plastic Modeler Society Old Dominion Open, which Dan and I are going to be attending on February 29th. We'll, that will be followed in two weeks with an interview with Sam Lenz. Join us as he shares his painting journey with us as well. And remember, to be a better, braver, happier painter, all you have to do is be yourself and no challenge is insurmountable. See you next time. Listening to Paint Dry with Mike and Dan is a production of LTPTWMD. All rights reserved. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the host. The music is Death by a Thousand Questions by Springtide. Download from the free music archive on a non-commercial attribution share alike basis. All views and opinions expressed in the show are solely the views and opinions of the person who said them. All celebrity voices, if any, were impersonated and done so poorly.